This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today I am delighted to be joined by my friend Gordon Robertson. Gordon is the president and CEO of the Christian Broadcasting Network, which is the dominant Christian media organization globally. He is also the executive producer of CBN Films, which has produced documentaries and features, including Christmas, The Story Behind the Traditions, and five remarkable films on Israel, ranging from an exploration of the liberation of Jerusalem, the humanitarian work being done around the world by Israeli volunteers, and the many and varied products of Israeli innovation. His Superbook is an animation series that has brought biblical stories to children all over the world in their own languages. Moreover, Gordon co-hosts The 700 Club, which is CBN's original flagship program. He also leads Operation Blessing, which brings humanitarian support in the form of clean water, hunger relief, disaster relief, and medical care to those in need around the world. My organization, African Mission Healthcare, has been blessed to partner with Gordon and CBN in strengthening Christian mission hospitals throughout Africa, and now particularly with regards to life-changing surgeries. Gordon, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Uh, Mark, it's great to be with you. So before we get into your chosen passage, which uh, for those uh, listeners with their Bibles in front of them, that's uh, Genesis 24, 62. I just want to ask you a question about your love of all things Jewish. And when I say all things Jewish, I'm talking about the Jewish people, the Jewish state, and the Jewish religion, which is evident in your public work on CBN, from the movies we discussed, to the work of CBN Israel, to the blessings and the prayers that you request in your emails on Jewish holidays that many Jews have not even heard of. This was also evident to me in private. Indeed, the very first time we met was when you were discussing, just in conversation, various medieval rabbis. How did this intense and comprehensive philo-Semitism derive? Well, it goes back to when I was 11 years old and I went to Jerusalem for the first time. And I had a profound moment at the Western Wall. Mm. And it's something that I really can't explain. It's one of those moments in life where you transcend what you're actually experiencing. You, you, you start to see something that's timeless. And here, it was two years after the Six-Day War, and here, just the sheer jubilation that next year in Jerusalem was actually this year in Jerusalem. Wow. And the expulsion of the Jews from the Jewish quarter during the time that Jordan controlled Jerusalem from 1948 to 1967, they literally wiped out the Jewish quarter. I mean, they literally drove every single Jewish residence away. If you were Jewish, it was illegal for you to go to the Western Wall. It was illegal for you to pray in Jerusalem. So to see the prayers of the generations fulfilled right before my eyes, it was, um, it was a profound moment. I... Um, in an odd way, I've kind of adopted that. I have this sort of bizarre Christian bar mitzvah tradition that I have with my children. And when they're 12, I, I take them just with me. There was one trip, um, my wife Catherine went along with our eldest, and they are baptized in the Jordan River, and then we go and pray at the Western Wall. Wow. And my son Patrick, 
when he did it, as we're leaving the old city, we're walking hand in hand, which is kind of unusual for us, but it was a, it was a real moment. It was a, a generational transference happening. And he turns to me and said, Dad, I can't explain it, but I feel like I'm home. Wow. I, I don't know what causes that. I, I, you know, you can say it's a God moment and, and God is it doing something, but it, how, do you have, how do you have words for that? That why would I be so inspired that I would in turn want to inspire my children? And they in turn would get it and, and understand just how profound this is. That's what started it. I had another really dramatic encounter with the book of Psalms. I was dying from cerebral malaria in Manila. This is December of 1995. And I've been on a mission trip to the border of Myanmar and Thailand and had gone to bring some English teachers to a tribe called the Kareni. They are a persecuted tribe. They've been subject to literally a genocide by the majority of Burmese. They were living in a refugee camp just on the other side of the border of Thailand. And I'd come back from that trip and I had gotten drug-resistant cerebral malaria, except I didn't know I had that at the time. I, I'm really bad about doctors. I don't like going to doctors. So even though I have high spike fevers, 103, 140 degrees, I didn't go see a doc. And it, it finally took it until I was vomiting blood. And that got me into, um, that got me admitted to the hospital. In, in that, uh, I uh, found myself realizing I was dying. And I started singing a song I learned as a, a teenager that we sing in Christian churches. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I, I won't sing it for you because I don't, I'm not a very good singer. But I learned that, that piece of the Psalms and really not knowing the, the source. When we would sing it, it was this real happy, joyous song. And I didn't know at the time, it's Psalm 118. It's the end of the great hello. It is the psalm that is sung at all the festivals, uh, all the high feast days, and would have been sung at Passover in the first century. Previously, I had in my silliness, I'd actually prayed for a taste of Gethsemane, that God would give me that, that taste. I'd read a lot of missionary biographies, and two had really struck me. One was uh, Praying Hyde, who, who brought Christianity to the Punjab region of India about 120 years ago, and then Evan Roberts, the great evangelist of the Welsh Revival. Both of them had prayed for that, and, and remarkably about the same time period. Independently, they they had prayed for it, and both of them credited as as something that forever marked them, that they had had an experience that they rarely spoke about, and it absolutely changed them. I prayed that not knowing what I was getting into. I was expecting some kind of spiritual experience or some revelation from Scripture. I wasn't expecting what I was getting ready to go into, and but I'm lying in my hospital bed. By this point in time, the virus has taken over and my kidneys are failing, my liver is failing, my skin is completely yellow. I can't sleep because the virus is starting to clog my brain. That's why they call it cerebral malaria. It, it stops blood flow to your brain. That's what ultimately kills you. It takes you into a coma and you die. Very few people survive it, and particularly when it's drug resistant. So here I am, I know I'm facing death. I'm, I'm trying to pray. I'm, I believe in divine healing. I'm trying to pray for that. 
there's a phrase, the heavens are brass. And, and for me, it's like all my prayers bounce back at me. I didn't think any of them got through. But then I started singing, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I'd forgotten about the prayer. I'd forgotten about the taste of Gethsemane. I'd forgotten about all of that. So I'm singing that in the night. It's like, you know, two, three o'clock at night. Uh, the next morning, uh, a Filipino pastor calls, calls me and says, God woke me up this morning and, and told me that I had to come in and pray for you. Uh, so he did, and wasn't a particularly good prayer. <laughs> they, they were kind of shocked with my appearance by this point. My eyeballs are yellow. My skin is yellow. I've dropped 25 pounds, and it's clear that I'm, I'm dying. But then he, he, he calls me back later, and he said, well, on the drive home, God spoke to me and said I didn't do it right. Wow. So, okay, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> you know, I'm dying over here. And he said, well, I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> so the next day, he shows up with some elders from the church, and he's supposed to, you know, in accordance with James chapter 5, if any are sick, let them call for the elders and let them be anointed with oil, and the prayer of faith will raise them up. And so the elders were two doctors, and, and they looked at me, and they knew what they were looking at. And uh, I can't say any of them had had much faith. And then the pastor said, well, I forgot the oil. And so I said, well, we're in a hospital. There's got to be some ointment around. Ointment will do. And let, I'll get anointed with ointment. And so we got some ointment. I got anointed with ointment. They prayed. And there was something that caused me to believe that God really had spoken to that pastor and really called him to come and pray for me. And so... This is all on a Thursday. On Saturday, against medical advice, well, if God has healed me, if he's called this man to come and pray for me, then, then I need to check out of the hospital. Faith is an act, and I need to act. So I did that, and then the next day, the fever came back, and it was like, I am just the complete, I'm the biggest idiot of the, <laughs> the world. Why did I check out of the hospital? And, you know, Catherine and I had a discussion, you know, do I want to die in the hospital or do I want to die at home? Was Catherine with you in the Philippines or was she in the States? Oh, she was, she was. We lived in the Philippines for five years. Two of our children were born then. So I, I decided I'd rather die at home. So I did that. And then the next morning, amazingly, I woke up. I didn't die. And I decided that I needed to put myself in a prayer closet. I had this little study room and I needed to, you know, come to terms with God. What's going on? I had a trip to India that was planned, and if that was going to move forward, I needed to have some kind of word. And so I, I went into prayer. I was sitting in a chair. Uh, in the Philippines, the homes are constructed out of concrete for uh, stability. They, they get a lot of hurricane. So there's a concrete wall behind me. I don't know how this happened, but I heard a voice behind me. And how that happened through a concrete wall, I don't know. But I heard a voice behind me. It literally caused every cell in my body to vibrate. And again, I don't have words for this. I, I can just say what, what happened to me. And the voice said this, get up, get to work, for I have healed you. And when healed you came out from the voice, a bolt of energy went through my entire body. And I knew I was healed. I got up out of that chair. I started running around the house. Wow. Catherine, God has healed me. I am completely recovered. I need to go to work. I've got to get to the office right now. I need to be obedient. 
I've got to get to the office. I don't want to lose out. You've got to, let's let's go. And so I, I drove to the office and there was great rejoicing. I still had to make the trip to India. And so I, I wanted to have the doctor verify that what had happened to me. And so two days later, it's a Wednesday, prayer was on Monday. Wednesday, I go back to the same doctor who had treated me in the hospital and uh, he ran a blood screen. And he came back and said, I shouldn't tell you this, but you should have died. We didn't properly diagnose you. And we thought it was um, uh, dengue fever. And we, did, we didn't get the right malaria blood s- smear at first. And you should have died. And, and there was actually a Frenchman who had, had the same disease die the week before on the same floor in the same hospital. And he was saying, I, I shouldn't tell you, but it was sort of the second time that we had missed it. And I, I can't explain this, though, because I'm looking at your blood test. And I can't even find any parasites. I can't even find dead parasites. Wow. I've never seen anything like, well, two weeks later, I'm in India. I'm preaching at this church and I'm staying at a pastor's house and it's pretty remote. And the pastor, I mean, it's like the, the houses are out of the, you know, first century Israel. They have flat roofs and they're, they're kind of made of this mud brick and I'm staying on that top part where the pastor had a study and there was a little bed in there and a wall full of books. And I had a lot of energy on that speaking tour. It's like this amazing miracle has just happened to me. And yeah, I wanted to tell everybody about it. And so I I finished. It was late at night. It was like 11 p.m. And so, you know, I've got to go to sleep because I'm supposed to speak five times the next day. In India, when when you come, they they... They take all of you. And I needed to go to sleep. And I said, well, I've got so much energy. I don't know if I can. I'm looking at this wall of books. And there is a book on the Jewish festivals. And I've got to be honest. I looked at it and said, that will put me to sleep. (laughs) So I got the book on the Jewish festivals. And let's run through the festivals. And the first one in there was Passover. And the book was written by a Christian. It wasn't written by a rabbi. And it goes through Passover from the standpoint of the Last Supper and reveals to me the Hallel and that the final song that Jesus would have sung before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he crossed the book Krijan and went over to the Mount of Olives and prayed in Garden of Gethsemane, the final song he would have sung is Psalm 118, which has, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. It also has, I will not die, but live and declare the glory of the Lord. Well, I found a Messiah in the Passover and things that in my Baptist upbringing, I had never been taught. And it created this enormous hunger for everything the rabbis have, every one of the festivals. What is the significance here? And cemented into me the words of Jesus, salvation is of the Jew. That's what he told a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, Salvation is from the Jews. You, You look at the number of secrets within Torah scholarship, within the Torah, obviously, itself, within the Tanakh, within the festivals, within the rituals, within the great tradition that has been preserved now for 3,500 years. You look at these things and you, you just go, wow, 
the riches, the treasures of it. And it created a lifelong hunger. And I still have it as part of my daily and then weekly. I go through the weekly Torah readings. And there's a wonderful thing from Archroll called Daily Dose of Torah. It's pretty good. It's great. And every time there's a festival, I want to learn all about it. What are the prayers and what what are the meanings and how does this fit? Judaism is absolutely a religion that uh, follows a calendar. There are appointed times appointed times to approach God. When you follow along those ways, you're fulfilling scripture. You're following the ancient path. You're not off blazing a new path. You're following the ancient path. Well, and, and when, when, we, when we study Torah, we pray from the same Psalm, Psalm 118, 19, which is we ask God to reveal the wonderful hidden things of his Torah. Well, wow, what, what a beautiful story in the beginning of a beautiful friendship that uh, is so meaningful on so many different levels. So Gordon, um, of all the passages that, that you've studied, why did you pick to discuss Genesis 62 to 64? And tell us what, what happens in Genesis 6, uh, 24, 62 to 64. Isaac is about to get married. That's right. <laughs> and his wonderful bride has been selected by what anyone would call a supernatural event. Her own family says Hashem has put all of this together. The fact that she was willing to leave her family to go marry someone she had never even seen shows how God is intervening and he's actually working out all the details of her life and speaking through her, speaking through an incredible sense, set of circumstances, you know, a, a wonderful prayer. Let the one who comes and waters my camel be the one. It's, it's just Unusual, but the the thing that gets me is that, and forgive my southern pronunciation of Hebrew, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you correct it. Be'er li roi, right? The God who sees me, the well of the God who sees me. That's where Isaac is praying when he sees Rebecca. Right, he has gone there to pray. It's the only time in the Tanakh that that word meditate appears, and so it's a very unusual word, and it's also the time that. In terms of the Jewish daily calendar, it establishes a time of prayer uh, that mirrors. There's a time of prayer established by Abraham. There's a time established by Isaac. And then a time established by Jacob. So th- this is the time, and it's the time to meditate on the goodness of God and you know the events. I'm sure that Isaac had heard the story of Hagar. Yeah, Hagar, when she was banished, she was banished to Be'er Lahai Roi, right. which is the only other time in the Bible we hear about this place. And, and she's the one that names it. And she names it, right, right. It's, it seems to be where you go when you're alone to seek God, because Isaac probably went there after the Akeda, right? because he and Abraham don't come down together. He probably goes there perhaps to see Hagar, perhaps not, who knows, but it's this special, mysterious place in the Torah. Right. And you don't hear often, you know, what was the separation between Abraham and Isaac? All you know is that there was a separation. All you know is that there was one. And the end of this is his bride goes into his mother's tent. And then there's a marriage ceremony that presumably Abraham attends. She is first introduced to the women of the household. Then she is married to Isaac. And then he takes her as his wife. And then it concludes, and he loved her. Yes. And again, it's the second time that word is used in the Torah, the first being God speaking to Abraham, take Isaac, the one that you love. 
Right. The first mention of love in the Torah is not in a romantic context. It's between a father and a son. And so here you have father and son, and then what by all accounts is a horrific thing. If, if any one of us were to do that with one of our children, social services would step in immediately. Absolutely. There, there would be uh, an immediate separation. Jacob swore by the dread of Isaac. And, and so there's a tie there generationally where these stories are obviously repeated and, the, and they tell each other uh, what happened. But here you see uh, a generational transfer. First, the love of Abraham to Isaac, and then the love for, for Isaac and his wife and how that comes together in family and how, how very much the covenant of God is transmitted through family generations. Absolutely. And, and I think another fascinating thing about this passage is that it teaches us all we need to know about what to look for in a spouse. You know, right now, at least in, the, in some sectors of the, the Jewish community, not the Orthodox Jews, but the Jewish community, maybe the Christian community too, people look for all kinds of different qualities. And in fact, the number one quality on the dating app to put up there is apparently your trip to Tuscany. <laughs> Abraham's servant only looks for two things. He says that um, she's very beautiful and that she's very giving. I mean, she waters, she gives him food, she gives the camel's food, she gives the camel's drink, and she does it quickly because the deeds of the righteous are done in haste. So he knows only two things. She's beautiful and she's giving. With only that information, he decides this is the perfect bride for Isaac. And in fact, it is. And that's all Isaac needs to know. They get married. And then the order you just read is so interesting. So in the secular world, people believe you first meet her, you romance her, you fall in love, then you get married. The Bible has an opposite. First, he marries her. Then she becomes his wife. Then he loves her. His love deepens with the commitment. Yeah, and becomes a covenant. That's right. It takes on a, a much deeper dimension. That's right. It's a much deeper dimension in that, in that the uh, commitment precedes the love. Where we, we have it in the second world the other way around. Where first you fall in love, then you commit. It doesn't work out so well much of the time. Right. But here, true love deepens with commitment. That's why love's the last thing that happens. And this it's a pretty flawed marriage, but it happens to be the best marriage in Genesis. Yes, I, I would argue it's the best family in the whole Bible. <laughs> it's the best family in the Bible. <laughs> Despite its problems, it's the best family in the, in, in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Moses, presumably divorcing Zipporah. Yes, yeah, the best family in the Bible. That being said, I think in this passage, we can also see intimations of what's going to be an imperfect marriage in that the only conversation recorded between Isaac and Rebecca is after the great deception when Isaac is deceived with his sons. Right. So they never actually communicate. But here we see that Isaac is, as you said, meditating or praying in the field. So he's, he's low. He raises his eyes and what does he see? Camels. He doesn't see a beautiful woman on the camels. He sees camels. And Rebecca raises her eyes. Why she's raising her eyes from the camels and she sees Isaac. And it's one of, it's one of the more romantic passages in the Torah that there's this gaze across the field their eyes meet, and, and her immediate reaction is to ask who, and then when she finds out who it is, she, her next reaction is to veil her face. She veils her face, and, and they, they know all they need to know about each other. The, the problem, I think, that's being foreshadowed is they don't actually communicate, and I think that's one of the problems that we're going to see in the famous scene where, where Isaac, as an old man, is deceived, and that Rebecca never says, Hey Isaac, like we have the wrong kid getting the birthright. They never had that conversation, and and you and you wonder why Rebecca never revealed the vision that she had of the two nations struggling within her. Great point. She never does. That's right. And why that is, Isaac does come 
to bless Jacob even after he's tricked. And this is before Jacob goes off to find his own wife. You know, his, his mother didn't want him marrying a Canaanite. She was vexed with the Canaanite wives of Esau. She didn't want that. So he goes off to Laban's house, which is a whole other story. Isaac comes around and Isaac sees it. And he does bless Jacob and does so with full knowledge of the trickery, with full knowledge of what he's doing. That's right. And, and I think, um, so everyone in the, in the Torah and the Bible is deeply complicated. I mean, forget no perfect people. There's, there's no, the, almost the greater you are, the bigger your flaws are. And Isaac is obviously a man of piety, which is good, but he's not really a man of action. I mean, you know, p- perhaps he was stunted at the Akeda. I mean, who wouldn't be traumatized to some extent if your father, and he's 37 at the time or so, 37, 39. His, right. his father brings him on the mountain and is about to slaughter him. So Isaac and Abraham walk up together. They walk down separately and Isaac's here praying and he, he's, never, he's never the man of action that his father and his son are. And, and Rebecca is, Rebecca is the woman of all seasons. She's the woman of action. She makes things happen. She takes responsibility for a transmission and she, and she executes. Well, Isaac does fulfill his, his place. I like to speculate that because he's 37, he could have taken Abraham, you know, easily, if, easily. If he, if he, if he wanted to, here's a 37 year old man, and you know Abraham's up there, and so well, he was 90 when he, yeah, he would have, he was 90 when he had him. So you know, is is that what is that? Is that 127? And I, I, I like to think Isaac could have taken him, but he, it was in such perfect submission, not just to his father, but to the wishes of God, and and he's got to take his father's word for it. That's right. Which is, I mean, it was, it's, it, it's really profound that he would do that. I mean, Abraham would do it. I mean, why? I mean, Alan Dershowitz was the guest last week, and the question came up. He, he picked the Akeda story, and the question came up, why doesn't Abraham argue with God? Abraham argued with God at Sodom. Moses argues with God later at the Golden Calf. Abraham, at this pivotal moment, does not argue with God. Isaac does not argue with Abraham. I mean, everyone lives at the end, but not well. Sarah, the next thing we see about Sarah is that she died. Right. She's presumably told the story and totally reasonably just drops dead of a broken heart. Abraham and Isaac never have a relationship again. And kind of the whole family is in some significant way destroyed over this lack of communication, this lack of argumentation, perhaps too much obedience. Well, I think it's significant. Abraham didn't consult with Sarah. That's right. And I'll I'll fill in a little of the blank book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, but written by a Jewish author, it says that Abraham was convinced that God could raise up Isaac from an island, hmm. that he, he was fully persuaded that he who had promised was able, to the point that he believed in resurrection. That follows Jewish tradition as well regarding that same passage and the prayers that are done. It's, it's one of the most repeated passages in the Jewish liturgy throughout the year. And it points to the resurrection of the dead. It literally, as the knife is about to come down, he, he despairs of his life, but then he is raised from that death moment. That this, is, this points to our resurrection. Hmm. Alan's interpretation of that was, Alan Dershowitz's interpretation was that Abraham had won the argument with God that you should not kill innocent people at Sodom. So Alan's point is the argument is one. So Abraham knew that God would never have intent, would never have killed Isaac because Abraham had already defeated God in the argument. Ah. And now 
Now it's just a matter of executing accordingly. So Abraham's <laughs> faith was, I won the argument. The judge is going to enforce the law that he, that he wrote. Yeah, he will provide the ram for the sacrifice. That's right. That's right. So, Gordon, thank you for such a fascinating conversation. Now, the, the last question is always uh, going from um, this uh, great text, the Torah, to another text, which is Andre Melrose's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, he said, I, I ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> um, <laughs> perhaps include myself in that group. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said he's never seen it. So um, in all your years of, of running CBN, all the people you've met, the movies you've made, the extraordinary influence you have, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I learned in my missionary years, 1994 through 1999, going to a lot of different people groups of a lot of different religious backgrounds. And the thing I, I absolutely took away, all people everywhere wonder if there's somebody up there huh. and if that somebody cares about them and if there's a way to reach them. All people everywhere share that. All people everywhere. Wow. Very interesting. And and I think you'll even find within the atheist community that they too speculate. I mean, Richard Dawkins was, was asked quite pointedly, if it turns out you're wrong, what are you going to say? And he said, well, he's going to tell God, well, you hid yourself very well. <laughs> so I think all people everywhere have that and, and have that longing. It's at the point of revelation. You know, the Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition is, is a, it's a religion of revelation. You, you have to have that on your own. You have to have that personal. You can, you can have a lot come to you generationally, but just as God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appears and he reveals. Question is, are we looking, are we listening, and are we ready at that point to act on that revelation? So... That's number one. Number two, and this is, again, a universal I learned in my travels, all people want to be loved. Do they feel insufficiently loved? Absolutely. And there's, there's a separation, and it's been the separation since the Garden of Eden. We, we see through a veil the pronouncement of Isaiah, that a veil has been cast over the eyes. We have eyes to see, we have ears to hear, but we do not comprehend. We, we don't know that, and, and we're... In, a, in an odd way, we're all like orphan children. Why has daddy rejected us? And what is that? We're longing for that. We're longing for that unity and that communion and that cool of the evening conversation. Well, I think we're seeing that in the public health statistics right now. I was talking with one of the doctors who you and I mutually support in Africa about the fact this is the first year in America that life expectancy has declined three years in a row. Wow. And I, I asked him why, and he said, it's very simple. It's diseases of despair. And he said that all stems from being lonely. It's the existential loneliness, which is now showing up in public health statistics. Exactly what you're saying. People want to be loved. They're insufficiently loved. And, you know, it's, it's only two times in the, in the Torah does it say something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. God to Adam. And Jethro to Moses, essentially, it is not good for man to lead alone. What you're doing is not good, which is being the, the judge by yourself. And aloneness is not good. But it takes revelation to, to see through that. And, and to see that all people everywhere are from the same blood. 
uh, all people everywhere come from the same source. Medical science is backing that up now. All human beings, regardless of where you are, regardless of race, skin color, eye color, regardless of religion, we all come from a set of two parents. That's what genetics is now informing us. So we, at a very fundamental level, are all related. We all have the same blood, the same bone, the same thoughts, the same aspirations, the same makeup. And it takes revelation to really see that. There's something about the current situation that we, we, we tend to be driven to divide. We tend to be driven to look at our differences. We tend to accentuate what separates us instead of what really should unite us. And it's in that unity and in that community and in that family and in that covenant that you can find security and you can find that love that we're all looking for. Well, Gordon, on that note, you have done more than anybody else to bring the Jewish and the Christian communities together and to show the commonalities that we have under God. I mean, it's so much so that I was showing some of your work to a couple of friends of mine who were Orthodox rabbis, and they had the same reaction. They said, this is a theological significance, not, not political, not social, some theological significance, really the, the friendship that, that you forged. And so I uh, I thank you for your friendship personally, and, and also for the friendship that you're, you have forged and are forging between the, the Jewish and the Christian people. Well, I've got a new one coming out, come out February. Oh, terrific. What is it? On the House of David, all the archaeology in Israel that proves the historical reality of David and awesome. Solomon and Hezekiah, the House of David. Well, Erica, my favorite place in Israel is Ir David. That must be a... That's part of it. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see it. And uh, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on to The Rabbi's Husband. Great being with you, Mark. Mark.